it's good to uh, come together and to remind ourselves, really, of uh, this event, this Christmas event. And uh, you might have found it strange, really, in actual fact, when uh, I read to you the book from the book of Revelation, and uh, chapter 19, if you read through the chapter, it is one of those extraordinary chapters, and uh, it is a chapter of uh, great triumph for God and for His people. And this is what is presented to us, and it might seem a bit of a strange thing to be uh, looking at something like this uh, the day after Christmas Day. And it is a strange thing in one sense, but uh, we should uh, remember, isn't it, that the coming of Jesus was an historical event, and uh, we are now awaiting another historical event in the second coming of Jesus. And the second coming of Jesus, of course, is going to be completely different to His first coming. And what you find here is that when you look at this particular chapter, you see such a wonderful triumph in all of what Jesus is about to do and what will take place in this particular event. It's a very dramatic scene that you see here. But when you think about it for a moment, isn't it, we think of um, what time it is in the year, it was the coming of Jesus into the world, the incarnate God, Jesus becoming man, living among us. But for most of us, I suppose, and especially if uh, you watch programs on television, everybody wants to express that sense of the baby Jesus. Now, I'm not against uh, thinking about the baby Jesus. The amazing fact that God, isn't it, was contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man, as Wesley says. And it is a wonderful thing to remember, to think of it, but in very many ways, what you find is that people condescend to think of it purely in a very sentimental way. You know, they've got this idea, haven't they, of the, the baby Jesus, yeah? thinking of him as a little baby. And there is always a sentimental element to that, isn't there? When we think of babies and children, you know, and a new baby coming into the world and the joy that that brings, and we, we think of this little baby that is defenseless, needing, you know, the care and the watching over of the parents and especially the mother. And, you know, we who have had children, you know, we can look back nostalgically, can't we? And we can think of our children when they were born, you know, <clears throat> little babies, not in a manger, but in a cot. And the thing is this, isn't it, that we remember those days in a nostalgic, sentimental way. And here you can find that here is the Apostle John, you know, when he wants to describe Jesus, he describes Jesus completely different to the way in which all the other writers in the New Testament describe him. He is the only one that uses that term, the Word of God. You know, he starts off his gospel, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on in verse 14, doesn't it, to say like this, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, or he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, John as an eyewitness, he could say, we saw these things about Jesus, you know. But his concentration really is upon the person of Jesus, who he was. Prior to him coming into the world, he was the Word of God, the everlasting Word. And yet, in the fullness of time, he comes into this world. And he takes upon himself this 
human body. But he comes not as a full-blown man, as Adam was created. But he comes as a little baby, just like you and I. And so we can see how easy it is to condescend to the sense of the sentimental idea and view of Jesus. But for all of that, when you think about it for a moment, isn't it, that babies don't remain babies forever. You know? We can look back nostalgically and think of our children when they were babies. We can think of wonderful things that relate to their childhood and things like this, and their growth and their development and all of these things. But they don't remain babies. As the Apostle Paul says, isn't it, you know, when we were children, you know, we did childish things. But when we became a man, we put aside childish things. Why? Because, you know, we develop and become men. And in that sense, the baby Jesus no longer exists because he doesn't exist as a baby. He became a man. And as a full-grown man, we know that he went all the way to Calvary to die for our sins. Here he was. He had lived out that perfect life. He had developed as a man. And we remember the stories of Jesus, don't we? You know, about him going into the temple and discussing certain things with the wise men of those days, the scribes. You know, and he got involved in dialogue with them. Why? Because here he was. He was growing and he was developing. And of course, he becomes a man. And as a man, he bears our sin in his own body on that tree. It's not the baby Jesus who is dying on Calvary. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who is dying at Calvary. And so the baby Jesus, as it were, ceases to exist any longer. But it is still a good thing, isn't it, to remember Jesus coming into the world. The babe that was born, this unique person who came into this world. John, of course, he wrote his gospel. Why did he write his gospel? Well, he wrote his gospel, he says, isn't he? You know, that those who read these things might believe. And in believing, they might have eternal life. But when he writes his first letter, when he mentions Jesus as the Word of God again, he's writing to believers. <coughs> he's writing to those who have already come to faith. And he is writing not for them to believe in order that they might receive eternal life, but he is writing to them, as John Stott says, he is writing to them as believers to know that they do have eternal life. And how can they know that they have eternal life? And he goes into great detail on what it is to be born again. And the, the assurance and the reality of that salvation that comes to that individual. But when we come to the book of Revelation... It is Jesus being revealed as the one who is taking on his church and his people down through the ages until that time when he will come again. He is going to come in a very remarkable way. He is going to come and he is going to reveal himself. Because we know, don't we, that when Jesus lived, that he had a certain work to perform. But after his death, that wasn't the end of Jesus' work. We read about him, don't we, as our high priest, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he is performing that function in heaven above, at the very throne of God himself. But when you read in Acts chapter 1, isn't it, where Luke is writing about Jesus, 
And he speaks about him, you know, the, the first book that I wrote to you, or Theophilus, isn't it? You know, what did I write that book for? To tell you of all of what Jesus did. But now I'm writing to you, he says, to tell you about all of what Jesus is doing, not in his physical presence among his people, but by the Spirit of God. The ongoing work. The Spirit of God working in this world at large. And in many ways, the book of Revelation is the picture of his ongoing work in the church up to the ultimate time when Jesus comes again. And so you can see this picture broadening out. A wonderful story about Jesus, the babe of Bethlehem, becoming the man Christ Jesus, dying at Calvary. The ongoing work, the Spirit has come and the church is growing and flourishing in this world. But there is this ongoing conflict between the church and the world. But what is the final outcome? Well, the final outcome is really shown to us here. The destruction of Babylon has gone on in the chapter before. Here is the summons for those who have come to faith in Jesus that they're all summoned to the marriage feast of the Lamb. But it's almost as if there is a reversal back, reversal back to think really of the final conflict that takes place. And in verse 11... And this is the verse we're going to look at, verses 11 to 21, but I'm not going to be that long on them. But the point is this, that when you get to verse 11, you hear as John saying, what is taking place before me at this moment of time? He says, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You hear this conflict, you hear this war that is taking place, and he who is seated upon the, that horse is the one who is leading into that conflict. It's almost as if the gates of heaven are suddenly thrown open. And here is our hero coming out, sitting upon that white horse, leading the armies of heaven, who are also clothed in white and seated upon white horses. And they're coming and they're going into conflict, they're going into battle. The symbolism here, of course, is the white horse, isn't it? And the symbolism is this, that here is one who is going forward as one who is triumphant, one who is victorious. He is seated upon his white horse. Here is one who is going forward to victory. Very dramatic to see this particular picture. I remember watching a film, um, it was actually made in 1961, a guy in it who was acting, a famous actor at the time, Charlton Heston, and uh, some of you are thinking of Ben-Hur, but it wasn't. He did another great film with Sophia Loren called El Cid. They brought up another one recently, haven't they? But do you remember the graphic picture right at the very end the last few scenes, as it were, in the picture. He's been severely wounded and he dies, but nobody knows he's died. And so what they do is they prop him up on his horse. And they all have the enemies, as it were, of El Sid. They all have this picture of this man who, you know, they think he's dead. And so they prop him up on the horse and they, they open the gates and he rides out rides out the dead hero 
But all the fear that comes upon these people as they see him, they think he's alive. But the whole point is this, his armies follow behind him. But it's a bit graphic like that. You know, is this Jesus riding forth? You're upon his white horse. Here he is going forth to conquer all who stand before him. The world at large was in opposition to him. And the conflict isn't on one side, is it? Because what you read there in verse 19, isn't it? That you read there. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So here you have it. The two armies. Here is one on his white horse going forth with the armies of heaven. And here are those who are in opposition. The opposition, the beasts of the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against him. What a picture you've got. This inevitable conflict coming together. There can only be one victorious person in this conflict. There's no neutrality. There's no coming to an arrangement. There is only one true victor that is going to emerge from this conflict. And what a picture it is. Here he is riding forth. And here's the word of God. He's going out to meet the enemy. He's going out to crush the enemy. There is no uncertainty about it. But the final conflict is being seen here. And when you look at the picture here, how graphic it is, isn't it? You know, this is an ancient battle. This is the way in which war was fought at that particular time. And it wasn't like today, isn't it? You know, where you can have a gun and you can shoot somebody a mile away. Or you can send a missile. I can kill people thousands of miles away. But the sort of conflict that these people were involved in was eyeball to eyeball. You looked people in the eye when you stabbed them to death. Death was on the other side of a shield. The secret weapon of the Romans was their, 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 their boxes, as it were. They would, as it were, surround themselves with their shields and they would make a square. And in making that square, when the enemies came in, they would be looking them eyeball to eyeball. And the conflict would be so severe that you could see death, as it were, coming at you. And you could see death fleeing from the eyes of those that you have just stabbed. And there was blood and gore and all things. There was no glory in it. But it was a violent way of fighting and of killing your enemy. And what's the pronouncement here? The pronouncement is this, isn't it? That these particular people, in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, 
that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. You know the picture. You've seen Nina films, haven't you, where the vultures are, as it were, circling the dead. You know, the wild beasts come, the birds of the heavens come down, and then they demolish the bodies of the dead. And here is the summons, isn't it? The summons to what? Come and eat the flesh of kings, princes, powers, authorities, rich, poor, free, and bond. Slaves as well. They're all there. You see, death has no favorites. There's no hierarchy in death. When death comes, you're dead. As the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says, isn't it? The fool or the wise man dies as the fool. No difference. There's a leveling field there when death comes. And the kings are eaten along with the slaves, along with the, the troopers and the soldiers. God is saying, look, come down for this. The conflict is coming to an end. The battle has been fought. These have lost. Because what you read in verse 20 is this, isn't it? Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire and burning brimstone. It's a very graphic picture, isn't it? Here is the capture of the beast and the false prophet. Here is the political arena on the one side and the religious arena or re, re, situation on the other. You've got a false prophet who led this religious revolt against God. And you had this political arena as well. They led the forces of the armies of this world. And yet for all their strength, they're captured, defeated, thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. What have they done? They have led the people to receive the mark of the beast. They've led the people to revolt against God, to turn their back upon God, to ignore God, to worship this world, to worship the beast, the devil himself. And you see, the conflict is coming to an end. The battle has been fought. But how has it been fought? Well, it tells us in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness. Here is a righteous war that is being fought. Now, I know that through history people have said that they were always right in going to war. And in some senses, you can justify that. You know, you can think of the Second World War, for example, with Hitler and Nazism. 
And you can look at it, at it afterwards, isn't it? And all the evil with the Holocaust and things. And you can think of all the people that died and all the people who suffered and everything that took place. But what if they had won? What a state and a condition the world would have been in. There would be no more democracy. There'd be no more freedom of speech. Although that's getting limited now. But the whole point is this, isn't it? They went to war. Why? And they said it was a righteous thing to do. Why? Because we had to beat fascism. And you can sympathize with that. But their only true and just war is this war. The war against those who are in opposition to God. Opposition to Christ. He makes war in righteousness. He is the righteous one. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. He is the one whom God has entrusted judgment to. And this world is under condemnation from him. This is the one. And who is he? I've already inferred who he is, haven't I? But if you look at what it is said here, there are several descriptions of him, you know. This one primarily, which is the one I focused upon a little bit, I suppose, was the Word of God. And uh, you can see him. And it is a wonderful picture here, isn't it? Where you can see here in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So we're under no illusion as to who this person is. When you read through John, isn't it? And I've already quoted you from John chapter 1. And 1 John chapter 1, he is there described as the Word of God. There is this reminder, isn't it, of who he is. This is the incarnate God. This one who was God and yet took upon himself this human form and this human body. A physical body with all the attributes of a physical body. And he is the same one who is fighting the battle of righteousness for God and judging the world in righteousness at this moment of time. He is the Word of God. You know, it says of him, you know, when you read through John chapter 1, isn't it? It says that the Word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But prior to that, which is verse 14, when you read in verse 10, isn't it? The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. There was absolutely no recognition of the world. When Jesus came into the world, when they looked at him, they saw a man. But they didn't see God incarnate. They didn't recognize anything of his glory. They didn't recognize who he was. They just saw a man. They thought he was an insignificant man. A carpenter from Bethlehem. Insignificant in the world view. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. What a sad situation. And then even sadder, then he goes on in verse 11, and he came unto his own, that is the Jews themselves, and they did not receive him. He comes to those who should have known who he was. They had the Old Testament scriptures telling them. And yet for all of that, they didn't recognize him either. They mocked him at his death, didn't they? 
He said, if you are the Christ, come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. But they didn't realize who he was. They didn't realize the significance. But John says, but we beheld his glory. Their eyes were opened. And that is true of all of God's people. Our eyes are opened to see who Jesus is. That this word of God is the one who was with the Father in the realms of eternity, and yet in the fullness of time he came into this world. He was born of Mary, took upon himself this human body, this babe in a manger, was to become this one who is riding out of heaven itself upon that white horse going forth to trample upon those who are against, <coughs> against him at this moment of time. This is the one that we worship, isn't it? He is the eternal word. He is the one whom God has appointed. He is the one who is to judge the world in righteousness. As Paul was preaching in Athens, isn't it? And he says about Jesus, isn't it? What's going to take place? This judgment is coming, he says, and this judgment is coming by that man whom he has appointed and whom he has given recognition to all the world in that he has raised him from the dead. This resurrected person. Jesus. You see in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat in him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You see, he's got this sword coming out of his mouth. Here is the word of God, that sharp two-edged sword that goes out to strike the world in judgment. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right, says God to Abraham. But here is the man whom he has appointed, coming to triumph for righteousness, for truth. He is righteous. He is faithful and true. Who was more faithful than Jesus? Who was more true to God than Jesus? He said, I always do those things that please him. This is my son, says God, in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because he was righteous. He was true. He was committed to his father in every way. He always did what was right. Therefore, he could be judge. Because he knows what righteousness is. And he has come to judge the world in righteousness. To condemn what the world has done. To annihilate, to overcome the beast, the false prophet. To overcome all of those who have stood down through the ages in opposition to him. He will crush them. It's interesting to see, isn't it, there in verse 13, that it says that he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. You can see the picture, can you, you know? When they used to go into battle, you know, the the Garments and their clothes would be splattered with the blood of their enemies. Now, there's some conflict as to what people think of why the blood is mentioned here, you see. Because some say, well, it's got to be the blood of redemption. 
Christ spilled on Calvary. And someone says the blood of the enemies whom Christ tramples upon here. And others say then that it's both. Who's got to have a concession somewhere, haven't you? The both of them. His own blood and the blood of his enemies. But the conflict here is one of, you know, crushing and defeating the enemies, as it were, riding over them and trampling them under the feet of the horses and the blood splattering over the horses and over the garments. But there is a picture in the book of Isaiah. And it's found in Isaiah 63. Let me just read to you a few verses there, okay? Verse, verse 6 verses. And you'll, you'll get the picture straight away, okay? And it says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. How you speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to help, uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury had sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. That was it. Same picture, isn't it? 700 years before Jesus had ever became the babe of Bethlehem. This was prophesied about him. There at the very end of time, when Jesus comes back, to crush all his enemies. Why will he crush them? Well, look at his rule. There in verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a, new na a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a glorious picture, isn't it? The final conquest, the final victory, the final battle you're being led by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here he is supreme in every way. King over all kings. Lord over all lords. Supreme in every way. Here is he who can defeat all who ever come before him. All who ever challenges rule shall be crushed under his feet. And he will crush them, won't he? Why? Because he's king of kings. Because he's lord of lords. He is the one who is supreme in every way. Do you know when you read in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 in that particular chapter, tell us about the coming of Jesus, right? Tells us about him taking upon himself the form of a servant. Taking upon himself the form of a man. Being like you and I. But then it goes on to tell us, isn't it? You know, how that he suffered death and death, that death of the cross, it says, the fatality of it all. But it's not the end. 
And God, he says, has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. King of kings, Lord of lords, the subjugation of all who come before him. We can either bow the knee to Jesus in faith at this moment of time and trust him as our Savior, isn't it? And we willingly bow the knee then. But when he comes, all shall bow the knee. There shall not be any that will be missing. All the kings and powers and political powers that have ever been shall bow the knee to Jesus. Why? Because he is King of kings and Lord of lords, supreme Lord over all the universe. But who is he? All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He is what? He is the light and life of this world. He is the one who has come to give life to the dead. He is the one who has come to take his people to be with himself forevermore. The crushing of all his enemies, the defeat of all of these, is the final victory for all his people. And that you and I, my friend, We'll be in that earlier portion, won't we? You know, the birds of heaven were called to feast upon the dead. Kings and high-powered people and things like this and princes. But you and I are called, what? To the marriage feast of the Lamb. To be in that place with Him. And you and I shall enjoy and delight ourselves, for we shall be with this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords, and we shall be there on that victorious day when Jesus comes to take us to be with himself. If we think the first coming is important, the second coming is important as well, isn't it? For we are looking forward in anticipation for him to come, King of Kings, Lord of Lords.